Hi, this is Peter Maloof from the Applied Innovation Exchange with another installment of our podcast. And I'm here with Sam Burden and Michelle Batnerai. Sam, do you want to introduce yourself and then Michelle? Sure, thanks. Hi, Pete. Uh, Michelle, Samantha Burden, working with Peter on the Applied Innovation Exchange team here in New York. Great. And I'm Michelle Backrack. I'm the co-founder and CEO of a company called FineMind, which is a retail technology startup. Glad to be here. Thanks, Michelle. So I think the first thing that we want to talk about is just, um, you know, what you're doing now, where you got started and a little bit about your company. Yeah, great question. So I uh, told you guys before when we were having lunch that I was living in LA before moving to New York. But what I might not have mentioned, or you might not know, is I was a professional actress during that time. And uh, I had been doing that you know, growing up a little bit here and there. Um, and then I went to Berkeley, which um, I didn't like study acting there, but I was a part of a private conservatory in San Francisco. And I was working as a product manager at a startup, um, doing this acting thing on the side in San Francisco, which isn't very like, you know, there's not a lot going on there. <laughs> right. and, and so I was like, oh, if I'm going to try to make a, a go of this, I'm going to move to LA and like, see if I want to be an actress. And if I don't, I'm going to go back to business school and I'm going to get my MBA and focus on entertainment. So I was, uh, living in LA and I looked fairly young for my age. So I was playing like 16, you know, year old girls, right. even though I was 25 at the time. Um, so moving to New York, then when I eventually decided to go to business school, my wardrobe had to completely change. And I had to learn how to dress for cold weather, which had never been a thing before and dress for business casual, which I had never had to do before. So I had all these questions like, can I wear a suit jacket without the skirt? Like, how do I do that? I didn't even know. So like, I had all these questions around the clothing that I was buying and wearing. So Essentially, uh, I realized that I'm not alone. Most consumers don't have the immediate answer for how to be successful with the products that they're buying. They might have one idea. Oh, yeah, I can wear it with, you know, a, a button down shirt and jeans, but getting out of their comfort zone or, um, wearing it in a different way that they might not have thought of is hard for most people. And retailers actually sell a lot more products when they can show the shopper, Hey, here's three or five different ways to use the product that you're buying. But that wasn't happening very often because it's, you know, manual, the retailer has to manually make that guidance happen for the customer. So our company FindMine automates the process of creating that content that helps guide the shopper. So in fashion, we show complete outfits around every product. For home furniture, we'll show you how to style your room around the white couch that you want to buy. And we license the software to the retailer so that they can show that kind of recipe for success on their e-commerce site and the email campaign in a messaging platform and their advertisements and in the physical stores as well. Wow. Um, so that's an incredible journey. You've got to say, you know, talking about where you went from acting into business school. And now part of the way that we get introduced to you is that you use artificial intelligence, which of course, right, is the hottest topic and thing that's going on in technology now. How did the how did the AI piece kind of come into this? Um, so I believe firmly that AI is a means to an end and never the end in itself. Uh, like AI for AI, AI's sake is ridiculous. Like you, you always use it to achieve a goal. Um, so it really was just the best means to achieve the end of guide the consumer at scale. Um, because merchandisers and retailers and stylists and personal shoppers were manually putting together the lookbook or 
uh, you know, you go to Michael's craft store and there's an end cap that has everything you need for an Easter egg hunt right now. Um, <laughs> but somebody had to think about that right. and do it by hand. So anytime you have humans doing something, uh, it's going to be rate limited. Humans are human. We can only move so quickly. Um, but the really unique thing here was we need that human intelligence because how do you train a machine? What what wasn't an Easter egg basket. And also for our customers who have very strong brands, um, you know, we work with Adidas, we work with John Rovados, we work with BCBG, like we even work with multi-brand retailers who have a specific point of view, um, from like a curation and editorial perspective. Um, we don't want to get that wrong. And so just letting the machine go kind of do its thing, uh, you, you need the human input to start. So it's like the creativity and the inspiration comes from the person, but they don't, there's sort of diminishing returns to fun and utility building the hundredth outfit as a person building the first five, super valuable, pretty fun, creative. And then you're sort of like, I'm over this. So AI is actually the perfect solution when you have that kind of scenario where you need the human input, that kind of, you know, creative or artistic point of view is important, but then there's repetition after that. So that's where the AI can be really powerful and that's exactly kind of the, the solution that we um, needed for this particular problem set. Okay. Yeah. So essentially, the machines are good at the mundane. So when the job turns from kind of creative into the mundane, that's a good place for the machines to take over. Exactly. What was your exposure to artificial intelligence before? I mean, you speak so knowledgeably about it right now. And yet I'm trying to, other than having gone to school at Berkeley, what, what's, what was your like technical background? I didn't even do any technical anything at Berkeley. <laughs> I was going to be a peace and conflict studies major, and then I switched to uh, I switched to psychology, and then I found that they have this thing where you can make your own major, and I was like, yes, that's me. And so I studied innovation. Actually, I wow. made up a, a major called uh, managing innovation across cultures, and I wrote a thesis on it. Um, none of that had to do anything with tech, and like computer science was one of the hardest things at Berkeley to do, and I didn't want anything to do with that. Um, but I think that I, my interest is really in the user experience and kind of the um, consumer journey and the pain points or friction in uh, in a user experience. And being able to take those out always requires technology. So I was a product manager even while I was acting part, I was acting part time, product manager full time, and then I was acting full time, product manager part time, and then after business school for two years, I was a product manager. So I was in and around tech enough. Like you don't want me coding, I would be terrible. <laughs> it's not a good use of anybody's time, but I would need to get. I mean, when I worked for um, Univision, like I had teams of um, engineers in like four different continents, four different countries, three different continents, where like they would tell me, "Oh, Michelle, like we can't do this." And I would have to know enough to call bullshit if that was necessary and be like, no, like we can, here's how and why, and maybe you don't want to, or like the way I've described it is impossible, but like, here's what we're actually trying to achieve and there's a way to get there. Um, so I had to be like knowledgeable enough to do that. And then just sort of like reading and learning and, and keeping up with the industry. I will say though, that like, especially if you ask my technical team, they will tell you that my knowledge is very executive summary level, right? So from a practical standpoint, sometimes I'm like, why don't you just X? And then they're like, right. Yeah. you have no idea what kind of complexity is involved in that. So I have to check myself a lot that I'm not actually an expert in any of this because I don't, I'm not a practitioner of it. 
Well, the thing is, I mean, I think when you have that technical team support behind you, it sounds like you kind of, with your experience and your interests and your expertise, kind of understand where the opportunities and Mm -hmm. problems and what the consumer is currently dealing with and what solutions you need to solve them. And then you kind of need to go back and say, is this feasible? So from your perspective, being in retail, like just what do you see in the industry Mm. as like the opportunities for maybe AI, but maybe other technologies to change the customer experience? Like what do you see consumers asking for? Where do you see those opportunities? That's a really great way to describe what you said about the technology, like the relationship with the technical team. I'm the hypothesis maker. I'm just like, I wonder if maybe this, and then they have to go figure out, is that feasible? What does the data say? Could we do this? Um, And then we kind of iterate from there. But I have those hypotheses all the time about retail because I think retail is really interesting because like that's my industry as a professional, but we're also all consumers. So we're always like exposed to this industry, whereas that's pretty atypical for all other industries. Um, And so I think there's a lot of where areas AI can help, but I always go back to what the user experience is. I would die to have somebody fix the like standing in line at a store problem. I went to Macy's, um, I like bought something I think on Black Friday and I went to return it. Uh, I bought a bunch of stuff actually, but I went to return a couple <laughs> things like afterward and like right after Black Friday, like a lot of people were returning stuff because that's a big shopping time. And so there's a ton of people in the store and I was standing in line to return something. So it was like a negative revenue opportunity for Macy's, but I wanted to be shopping for other stuff, but I didn't want to lose my place in line because I knew five other people were in a common. <laughs> if they just let me take a number, I would have probably bought more stuff than I was returning. It could have solved the revenue issue for them. And like, I would have been happy. They would have been happy. But I think people oftentimes because of tech and all this like cool new bells and whistles and whiz bang, shiny objects, they forget oftentimes about like the most basic thing. Um, and for what we do too, I feel, I feel like that is always true. Like why would any retailer think it's okay not to show their customer how to use the product they're buying, that they're just assuming that they can sell you a thing one at a time, but nobody wears a shirt with no pants and no shoes. So this is like such an obvious gap to me. Um, but I feel like a lot of times that's what I'm seeing is like something that seems like such an obvious gap. Why hasn't someone solved this yet? Right. Yeah, so as you were talking about this, one of the things that started coming up in my mind is when we first met you and um, saw some of the things that you were doing in terms of the complete the look, um, you started, and I could see where you're the hypothesis maker because I was trying to do some of it too because you talked a little bit about you know the black skirt and what would go with it. And then I started thinking about things that were sitting in my closet. Like if I had a picture of this and I could run it against your algorithm, then I, you know, probably would, I'd find something to go with it instead of it ending up at Goodwill, right? Which is like, there's a lot of, you know, abandoned articles that people have. So what are some of the other hypotheses that you're thinking about with your, with your platform? Like, how do you see it evolving? Well, interestingly, like the first hypothesis we had when we launched this was it's going to increase average order value Mm -hmm. because if a customer can see for the shirt, the the skirt and the shoe and the bag and the jacket that all go with it, they're going to buy something else. So their total basket size is going to go up and that's how we're going to increase revenue. So that was true. We found that. But what was interesting was like, um, on, 
Across all of our customers, everyone has seen between 4% lift in total revenue and channels that we come into and 9% lift in total revenue. But the way they get it is really different depending on the kind of customer. Um, so average order value makes a big percentage of that 4 to 9% lift in sales for companies that have kind of lower price points on average. So it's like an easy thing to add on a bag because the bag is only $30 and your total basket's only $50. So like, you know, it's, it's a impulse buy, easy to say yes to kind of thing. Conversion rate was never a, a hypothesis we had that we were going to affect conversion rate. But what ended up happening was when we tracked the data, we found that, you know, um, we have a customer who's like a luxury menswear brand and people would um, buy the, le- like they sell leather jackets. It's like one of their big staple products and for like, $2,500. They're expensive. And what we would find is that the conversion rate on those products would be higher because of our technology, even if they didn't buy a single additional item. Because if you can see three different ways to wear it, you'd be like, oh, I, I get it. I can wear this to work. I can wear it on a date. Yeah. I can wear it on the weekend. <laughs> yeah. The mental ROI on this really expensive piece that you've been drawn to has now gone up. And you're like, hey, it's justified. Now I can buy it. So that was a really surprising one. And the other one was a repeat purchase. So we'd see customers coming back and repeating their purchase more frequently, which makes sense in that you saw the, the recipe to how to wear the product. You bought the product. You get the product home. Now you have to actually do the wearing of it. And you're like, oh, yeah, wait, I saw that outfit. Let me go back. And then you end up buying something again. And the last one that I have a hypothesis around that we've never been able to measure is that we can reduce returns. Because exactly what you said, if there's stuff that sits in your closet, if you just bought it and you haven't worn it in two months and they have a three month return window, you're like, I really don't want to, I don't want to waste this. I don't want this to go to goodwill. I'm just going to return it. Right. So we've never been able to measure that because of the, how much um, difficulty there is around getting returns data, which lives in a different place within right. people's data infrastructure. But I have a very strong hypothesis that that's true for us. And I would love to measure that. Yeah, I bet that's there. I think so. I mean, I can think of several things in my closet right now <laughs> that I wish I knew what to wear with. Yes. But I think it's interesting also about kind of the way the tech works and the way it's the fine mind is set up is that you go back to when you're making these recommendations, they're kind of, they go back to this, the stylists of that brand, right? So it's like, you know, when I'm shopping at wherever it is, I'm going there because I want to wear those clothes. I want to kind of embody what that images like I want to look athletic and I you know I Mm -hmm. want to be stylish whatever that may be but I think it shows like the power of brands Mm -hmm. and with like Instagram and social media all these different things blogs I feel like you know differentiating your brand and showing like this is how we are look yeah I think that's so powerful um because I would take that advice over a, a random like you mentioned another company that kind of does this where they'll just kind of pick things based on you. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I'm not a fashionista. Like I kind of want to go back to the brand and say like, what do you recommend for me? You want that authority and kind of like, uh, I don't know, stylistic point of view. Mm -hmm. That's such a good point. Something I've been talking about a lot recently is, is Amazon because you can buy a lot Mm -hmm. of the same things on Amazon as you can at the brand's website or at a multi-brand retailer. And Amazon's great at, 
variety and convenience, yeah. but it can be overwhelming and they don't have an editorial point of view. Whereas if you can buy that same thing on a multi-brand retailer's website, who's got some kind of fashion editorial, Hey, I'm going to hold your hand. You're going to look great. Yeah. We got your back. Then there's, there's an added benefit to going there. Even if you don't get two day free shipping, it can almost make up for all the things Amazon has in convenience because you're providing this other kind of service. So when that multi-brand retailer doesn't communicate that point of view stylistically at scale consistently across every single product and every single customer interaction, and they only show you what they think you want to buy, they've eliminated their competitive advantage. You might as well just go buy from Amazon. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. And I think because brands spend so much time focusing on their products, but the lifestyle that they're projecting, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the way that you described it was an athletic lifestyle rather than kind of an athletic cut, right? Mm -hmm. And so I I feel the same way where um, it would sure make it a lot easier if, you know, using using Find Mind to to complete things that I just don't want to continue to hunt and peck for, especially, you know, across these really large um, department stores that have a bunch of different, I mean, it, just being able to have something do that for me that still projects that lifestyle, you know, it's, it's great be, that it's true to the brand and right. it's true to the things that they're, that they're doing. So I can, I can see where that would be a value. The other thing that I started seeing is that if you do kind of embody that something that I bought a few seasons ago or a few years mm. ago, you know, somebody who is, I came from a technical background where I wanted to know my customer's installed base, right? Because if I knew what they had installed a couple of years ago, then I can kind of build on that. Huh. From a human perspective, it's like, well, if I had something from a, you know, a couple of years ago, but it's still, you know, it's not completely out of style. Is there something that, you know, is coming out with this new season that could update the look? Yeah. And, you know, if, if our clients, right, our collective clients start thinking about that, they can kind of continue to, to build on that. So I'm wondering if that's going to be a future hypothesis for you guys or something you're working yeah, on. Yeah. I mean, that's honestly like my little bit of the Berkeley, like um, very liberal part of me coming back into the business because one of my hesitations when I started the company was, am I contributing to frivolous consumerism? Mm-hmm. And the way I've justified it, whether it's others agree with it or not, is that if we can help consumers be more thoughtful about what they're buying, you buy less of that one-off, you know, oh, I saw it, it looked cool, but I never really thought through how I was going to use it. And it just sat in my house and then I ditched it and I got rid of it and ended up in a landfill somewhere. If we can come back to you and say, we know you have this in your closet, you bought it in the spring, now it's fall, here's your fall style guide, we can incorporate it into all these new things. You might still buy new products, but even more intentional about, about each product. And I believe that brands will win by having a bigger share of the customer's wallet, not by getting customers to buy one or two things from them here and there. And that just contributes to that frivolous consumerism. But if they can be a go-to brand for you because you start realizing over time, hey, every time I go to my closet, I pull out brand X. And I feel like they got my back. They send me this email every quarter with my style guide. I know that they understand my needs and they meet my needs. And then you're like, well, when I think of I need to buy a new jacket, where are you going to think of first brand X? So we're actually helping retailers sell more, but everyone's selling and buying more in a more thoughtful way that I'm hoping eliminates that whole, you got to go through your closet and donate, hopefully donate, but a lot of people don't. It does end up in the trash, you know, two thirds of the stuff that they have every couple of years. I think that's such a good point because 
you know, when you talk about, it's like another way to build loyalty and trust Mm. other than, you know, other programs that you can do or all those different things. But if you can, maybe through using FindMine or, you know, having their, like you said, you go back into your closet and you always pick pick their yeah. product. It's like um, not just share of wallet, share of, it's mind share. Yeah. Like how yeah. often can you be a part of their thought process? And if you're always there in their Instagram feed or, right. you know, like inbox in a helpful way, not just a buy from me, buy from me, add, right. add, add kind of a way, then that changes the relationship. It feels more like a trusted friend and not a schlocky salesman. That's right. Yeah. You're creating more of that emotional connection, right? And, and as we've seen and as we talk with our clients, emotionally connected customers are far more valuable than even highly satisfied customers, mm. right? So it fits into what you were saying is that they're less price sensitive. They actually take advice from you. I mean, there's all these other things that we've seen about emotionally connected customers. And so mm-hmm. it, you're doing great to kind of help build that connectivity or that Thanks. emotional. So that's cool. I know we're coming up on it um, on time. Yeah. One thing I did want to ask you about since we just heard it, you said that you wrote your honors thesis on innovation across cultures. Uh-huh. So how did that go? <laughs> what, was the, what was the premise behind that? I, I was actually interested in business like back at, you know, my freshman year of Cal, but I took the like intro to business class and I thought everyone in there was just like this smarmy capitalist that I didn't want anything to do with. <laughs> Even in Berkeley. Well, there, it, the business school is called Haas and there's yes. a joke that the people who go to Haas are called Haas holes. <laughs> and they're actually they set lo- themselves up for that. One. Yeah, they totally did. I mean, they're actually like, there's tons of people who go there who are my good friends and I like yes. love them. They're wonderful. And it's still Berkeley, so it's still very liberal. Right. Um, but I just kind of had this notion of business is not something for me, but I was interested in management still. So I, I found this make your own major thing and I had to pick stuff from two or three different disciplines. So I picked like psychology, linguistics and business. And I kind of combined those. And what I ended up going down a rabbit hole of was like, it wasn't first party research. It was all third party research, but um, was how different cultures sort of react differently to creativity uh, tactics or innovation tactics. So for example, like Eastern and Western cultures have different um like values. And so in Eastern cultures, a lot of times it's about harmony. And so you're not trying to be super different. Whereas Western cultures, like you're trying to be different actively, but one of the biggest things that influences creativity and innovation is divergent thinking. So anything that breaks you out of the norm. So if you're working with a group of people from an Eastern culture, just being divergent is divergent enough for them to kind of like have that brain, um, aha moment that sort of opens up pathways to creativity whereas in western cultures that's kind of expected everyone's expected to be divergent so you have to find other angles to really be divergent and disagree and that's why diversity is so important and mixing up the kind of points of view whether it's from a um, ethnicity standpoint racial socioeconomic gender um, where you live in the country suburban urban rural um, that all unlocks creativity so that was kind of the point of the whole research that's cool yeah so you get a little bit of the the cognitive diversity manifests itself out of the you know what are the whatever the social economic or regional geographic diversity absolutely um it's it's fascinating i mean i think that's something that we look at and we're you know here at the applied innovation exchange we're always looking at what's driving innovation how people get inspired by things love the story that you have here it's great been you know working with you and and um some of the stuff that you're doing for clients and looking forward to 
continuing our relationship and really appreciate you coming in. Yes, it's fun. Helping us on the podcast. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks.